As we come this morning to our sermon passage, we're continuing on in our sermon series that we started last week in the book of Exodus, a book of memory and hope. And where we are this morning is we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, if you have it in front of you, um, I'll be reading it out loud so you don't have to. But it's Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, and they'll fight against us, and they'll leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even passages such as this that are so dark. We thank you that your word is the instrument that you have given and that you use to show us you who you are and your purposes, what you're about. And that in seeing that, we get a glimpse of who we are in you. So show us Jesus, his beauty and his majesty. Show us his glory in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. I heard a parable a few years ago from the now late author, David Foster Wallace. This was actually, he was speaking at a commencement ceremony for some graduates. But he, he told it like this. He said, there are these two young fish swimming along one morning. And as they swim, they happen to pass an older fish who's swimming the other direction. And as they pass him, the older fish looks at them and he nods and he says, good morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. Then eventually one looks at the other and he says, what is water? See, the idea is that the young fish, they're surrounded on every side by water. And if you're a fish, water is your life, right? Take a fish out of water, it dies. They're surrounded by water. But because it's the thing that surrounds them on every side, they don't know it's there. They don't notice it. They don't see it. It's something that impacts everything about them. And the older fish knows that. He's lived long enough. But the younger fish can't see it. They can't see the water that surrounds them on every side. You know, that leads me to a question in thinking about ourselves, and it's this. What water are we swimming in? What are the things that we are surrounded by on every side that maybe we're too close to see? Things that impact every part of who we are, but we're a little too close or too embedded in it to notice it's there. You know, I think that's an important question to ask, and it's an important question to try and answer. It's a hard question to answer, right? Because if we don't see it, we don't see it. 
Sometimes it takes a lot of reflection. Sometimes it takes the insights of others from the outside. I think, as I said, it's an important question to ask and answer. And this morning as we reflect on this passage, which hits at this same kind of idea, um, I'm not thinking I'm going to give a full answer because I'm not. I have tons of blind spots that I don't know about, I'm sure. But I do think that this morning it's important to pause and to reflect on the experience of these ancient Israelites and these Egyptians. And Pharaoh mentioned in this passage. And to ask the question, what water are we swimming in? Our passage this morning shows us the water that the ancient Israelites and Egyptians were swimming in. And in fact, one of the things that happens in the book of Exodus... In God's revelation of himself as he comes to act on behalf of his people is a jarring awakening that happens when people look around. And when God reveals himself, an awakening that happens when they suddenly see the water that they're drowning in, really. And as they uh, are, are, are seeing God and his purposes come to light for his people... They're faced with a basic question, the same kind of question we're faced with, and it's this. With our eyes open, seeing the water that we're swimming in, who will we serve? Will we continue to swim in the water of Pharaoh, the way of Pharaoh which we see in this passage? A way defined by fear, by ignorance. A way of life that sees people as commodities and things to be used, that defines what matters by a bottom line or a quota to be filled. Or, awaken to the reality that water that we're swimming in will we serve God and His purposes for creation. A way that sees all human beings, from womb to tomb, as created in God's image with inherent worth. A way that doesn't define what matters by fear or by quotas. So as we hear from this passage this morning and we jump in, let's open our ears in the eyes of our hearts to hear and to see this call. And let's start where our passage starts today, verse 6. In this first section I'm calling uh, flourishing, flourishing. Let's read it again, starting in verse 6 and 7. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with now, if you remember last week, if you heard the sermon, or first sermon in the book of Exodus, I talked about how Exodus isn't just an interesting historical story. It's not even just a, 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 a telling of what happened to the ancient Israelites. It's the story of God. It's a, a sequel to the book of Genesis, where we meet a God that in the face of rebellion, in the face of sin, says that he will destroy the power of sin. And that his intentions is to bless every family, every nation on the face of the earth. And how does he do it? He does it by initially making a promise to a man named Abraham. Telling Abraham that through his family, through literally his seed, his offspring, that God will bless every nation on the face of the earth. And we also talked about how Genesis doesn't see the fulfillment of that promise. That in fact, Genesis ends... Four generations later, three generations later, not with that promise being fulfilled, but with Abraham's family of 70 people in Egypt. They fled a famine. And they've come in and they've been a blessing to the people of Egypt. But it falls far short of the big lofty promise that God had made. And so Exodus picks up 400 years later. 
400 years later. The promise did not end with 70 people. This one man and his promise becoming a family of 70. But as hundreds of years have passed, they have grown and they have thrived and they have flourished as a people. To the point that when we meet them here in Exodus chapter 6, I mean uh, chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, they've grown from 70 to a great multitude. This family has become a people. Notice how it describes them in verse 7. It says it in uh, successive terms, in big terms. It says they have been exceedingly fruitful, that they multiplied greatly. They increased in number and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. The writer of the book of Exodus, Moses, is making the point by hammering home, by describing it four different ways. These people are flourishing. They are thriving. Now it's interesting to note that all these descriptions point back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, when God creates humanity, it says he made it in his, He made humanity in his image, male and female, in his image. He blessed them and said this, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. What we're supposed to do as we read Exodus 1 is see that the Israelites are living in this flourishing that humanity was created for. Because humanity was created to flourish and thrive, to be fruitful and increase. And when I say fruitful and to increase, I don't just mean have kids. Sometimes people can think that that's what it means, but that's not what flourishing is. It's not defined or limited by having children, not at all. Humanity was created and made to create and to care the rest of God's creation. In other words, create culture. That's also what it's talking about. In other words, to put it in terms of our opening uh, idea of the water we swim in, the water that humanity is created to swim in, to live in, to thrive in, is flourishing. That's why God created human beings to flourish. Or, to put it more precisely, the grace of God which leads to flourishing is meant to be the water that we swim in, is meant to be the air that we breathe, is meant to be the gas in our engine. The profound love of God for us. That is what we were made to walk in and to live in. And maybe improbably, here in Exodus 1, in, in a strange land that's not their own, we find the Israelites have done just that. That over these span of years, where the promise is not yet, where the promise is just kind of lingering, they are flourishing, they are thriving. As I said, notice that the flourishing happens, the thriving happens as it seems like maybe they're spinning their tires. It happens in the midst of what seems like silence from God. Remember I said Joseph and and all that happened at the end of the book of Genesis was 400 years before the time of Exodus. And all that time in between, seeming silence from God, seeming inactivity from God. From the perspective of what's recorded for us in Scripture, God hasn't moved the ball forward on fulfilling His promise to Abraham in a very long time. And so I think there's a lesson for us. Them thriving in the midst of this seeming silence and inactivity. I think the lesson is this, that flourishing for us doesn't always look like what we think. That it often happens, and God often works in what we would call very ordinary things in, in very ordinary places. In fact, that's more often the case than not. You know, 
in our lives, we may have big religious experiences. Abraham did, if you read that God making the promise to him in Genesis 12, it's this dramatic moment. Genesis 15 and 17, it's these big dramatic religious experience moments that Abraham has when the promise is made to him. And God's not going to speak to us and tell us that all through our seed, all nations will be blessed. That's, don't expect that. That's not going to happen. But there may be times when our growth looks explosive, when we have big moments that are dramatic in our lives, where we feel like we, we grow in leaps and bounds in our faith in just a short span of time. But more often than not, it's not going to look like that. In fact, more often than not in our world, most of the time the only thing that grows quickly are weeds and cancer. Most of the time our growth is going to look like a sequoia, like a redwood tree. If you go out today and you plant a sequoia and you uh, put it in the ground and you water it for one day and you come out the next day expecting this massive tree, it's not going to happen. You plant a sequoia today, you're not going to live to see the fullness of its fruit. That's going to be left to, what, two generations from now. That's more often than not what our growth is into flourishing and thriving looks like. Not growing like a weed, not growing like cancer, but growing like a tree, growing like a sequoia. But the idea that God most often works in the ordinary, that if we're only looking for the big and explosive, then we can miss what's going on, it's true not just of our lives individually, it's true in Scripture as well. We see it here in this passage, as I've already mentioned, but we can often, uh, I think we can often miss the point that the Bible is not just this account of uh, angels appearing to people and dreams and visions happening. That happens, yes. But even in Scripture, those things are strange. Those things are out of the ordinary. There's only a handful of them that happened. They're strange and, ordin and, and out of the ordinary even in the Bible. Not just in Exodus here where the silent, it feels like God's been silent and inactive for 400 years, but think of the life of Jesus. God in the flesh, the light of the world, coming to the world, the eternal Son of God taking human nature to himself. And what does he arrive as? A baby, which we read about in the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Matthew. And then we don't hear anything, almost nothing, about his life until he's a 30-year-old man. When God came into this earth to live as one of us, most of that life was in absolute obscurity. The ordinary, everyday life of a small town guy. My point here is this. Take heart. In your experience, in our experience as a young church, in your growth, and your uh, 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 trying to walk in the flourishing and thriving that God has for you, that springs from His grace, God is at work, even if it seems too ordinary to understand. God is at work. The story of your flourishing is not you finding the best ideas to chase after. The story of your flourishing is not you taking the best advice and putting it into practice. The story of your flourishing is the God of all creation who has set his affections on you from eternity past, who is intent to see you flourish and thrive, who will not be halted by that even by your sin and selfishness, not by all the evil in this world, not by death itself. But in Jesus, he has come to overcome all that stands in the way between you and him being reconciled to one another. All that stands in the way 
of you walking in the flourishing that he has for you. That's his intention. And so what I'm saying is take heart. God is at work. He is growing you. He's growing us. And he will fulfill his promise. And our confidence isn't in how big and loud that may seem, how dramatic and extraordinary. Our confidence is he is at work, even in the ordinary, even in the ordinary to give us his grace. Now, if that's all that this passage was about, that we, we, could, we could feel good, right? We could say amen and turn the browser off and um, go back and, and feel great. But this passage is not just about that. It's the beginning of a great tragedy. It's the beginning of a great drama. Not just a story about flourishing, but a story about what evil does in the face of flourishing. And that brings me to my second section, a new regime. A new regime. Because we meet what? A new king that arrives on the scene that does not care about Joseph, that does not know Joseph and Joseph's family, who does not know the Israelites or care about them. The first hint we have that something's wrong is verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power. Now notice, the new king's not named. It's Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's a title. It's not, a, it's not like his first or last name. Pharaoh is a title. Um, and we aren't told his name, but he is described here, and that one description is this, that to him Joseph meant nothing. Or literally, he did not know Joseph. Now it doesn't mean that he didn't know who Joseph was. He probably did. Joseph probably loomed large in the history books for uh, the hieroglyphic history of the ancient Egyptians, but it meant uh, nothing to him. Joseph and Joseph's family meant nothing. And then this description, I think, is made all the more significant in Exodus because of how God is described in Exodus. As we meet God in later chapters, as God begins to act, he's described as one who sees. He's described as one who hears. And most significantly, he's described as one who knows his people and their situation. He knows. Pharaoh doesn't know and doesn't care. But God, God knows. God sees and God acts decisively. And how does God act? Well, he sees his people are oppressed and God chooses sides. God chooses sides. We read about that in our um, call to worship that uh, the Lord sustains the humble. God chooses sides and he chooses the humble. But he casts the wicked to the ground. Those who oppress, God doesn't choose their side. And that's good news in this world. How often have those who have sought to press down and oppress others said or thought that God's on their side? And that he justifies their oppressive actions. He justifies what they want to do to other people. Exodus tells us no. God chooses sides and it's not the oppressor. God acts for those who are pressed down and used. God acts for those who are victims of violence of sin and sin. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he might not know and he might not care, but God knows. Now, this not knowing or this lack of care that the new king has about who Joseph was and the Israelites was is one that has disastrous consequences. It's this lack of knowing that justifies Pharaoh doing what he does next. His not knowing or not caring leads to oppression. 
His not knowing leads to destruction. But it's not just ignorance that creates the situation, the scenario. It's the way of life that Pharaoh embodies. It's the water that he swims in. Now I mentioned at the beginning, it's a way of life defined by fear, by ignorance. A way of life that sees people as commodities or things to be used. Notice in this passage that a new king arises. Pharaoh takes his throne and he sees the force of that flourishing and thriving. He cannot imagine a scenario where the growth of the Israelites could be a good thing. It doesn't enter his mind that it could be a good thing. He can only interpret the flourishing of people different than him as a threat. Something that has to be stopped. It's always telling to me what moves people to action. What is the thing that happens that propels us to, from just using words to actually doing something? And for Pharaoh here, what propels him to action, to oppressive action, is the flourishing of people he doesn't like in his kingdom. Or to say it more accurately, the flourishing of people that he wants to use. The flourishing of people that he wants to use. It says that he's afraid. And fearful in this passage. And his fear isn't just that they'll grow. He is fearful that they'll continue to grow. And they'll become too sizable for him to control. But notice how he says it. In verse 10. We must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out. They'll join our enemies and fight against us. And here's this. They will leave the country. Pharaoh. The way of life he embodies. The kingdom that he leads. It depends on this class of people, the Israelites. Pharaoh fears that they'll grow so large that he can't control them anymore. And that they'll leave and suddenly he'll lose this entire class, working class of people that his kingdom depends on for the prosperity. You know, I can't read this passage without thinking of our own national history. In slavery in the United States... Slavery in the United States continued on because of fear and because of the same reasons that Pharaoh lists here. If you go back and you read the founders of the United States, men like George Washington who owned slaves, they'll talk about slavery as a necessary evil in a sense. They don't like it, they say. They don't like it. They want it to be get, gotten rid of eventually. It needs to go away maybe in our grandchildren's lifetimes, but they were afraid. They were afraid of what would happen to their pocketbooks if they got rid of slavery. They were, they were afraid of what would happen to white Americans if their former slaves suddenly got freedom and the right to vote. They rationalized their oppression of black men, women, girls, and boys in the same exact way that Pharaoh does right here. And just like in American history, this rationalized oppression was incredibly profitable and efficient. Look how profitable and efficient it was here in Egypt. Look at the production. It says that they enslaved the Israelites, and what happens next? They build two entire cities, store cities. Cities specifically built to keep the treasure of the kingdom. The slavery of the Israelites has been so profitable to the Egyptians that they have to build cities to store all the treasure. They had enough wealth that they had to build extra cities. The social order that Pharaoh put into place and that he embodied, 
that sees people as a commodity and a thing to be used, it prospered. Bricks got made, right? And again, in Pharaoh's terms, it was rationalized and this oppression was justified out of fear for national security, out of fear for what it would mean if the Israelites were freed. You know, to, to bring it not just to the past of slavery, but into our current moment, I worry, I worry when I hear so many of our political talking heads on radio or the 24-hour news channels, and I worry because the language that is so often used in political discussions is just like the language that Pharaoh uses right here to justify treating others wrongly. And we live in an imperfect world. We live in a broken world. I, I recognize that. So there's a certain level that we can expect that kind of rhetoric. That water that Pharaoh was swimming in is water that still exists in this world. But what breaks my heart the most isn't just when I hear it on TV or on the radio. What breaks my heart the most is when I hear Christians and I hear pastors use this kind of language. When Christians speak of others who created in the image and likeness of God and speak of them like they're animals. In our world, I think I so often hear it, most of all, in discussions about immigration. And I'm not a politician. Don't hear me stumping for any party. I'm not. But what I'm saying is this. Human beings from womb to tomb are created in the image and likeness of God for flourishing and for thriving. And if we're seeking to follow Jesus in this world, to value what God values, our posture for toward other people has to be informed and defined by that. First of all. It has to be informed and defined by the reality that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. Not first of all out of fears for national security. Not first of all out of fears of what it possibly means for us later on down the road. But first and foremost that people are created with dignity and worth given to them by God. And that propels us forward. You know, it's amazing to think about this. I doubt that each individual Egyptian was thinking about how much they hated the Israelites. Pharaoh did. He was obviously afraid and hated them, but I doubt each individual Egyptian that lived in that world and benefited from those store cities that were built were thinking how much they hated the Israelites. But the policies that Pharaoh put into place that were born of his bigotry, it became much more than just individual hatred. He, he created an entire social order meant to draw lines and separate and dehumanize and use. And in doing that, he marred not just the people he was oppressing, he marred himself, he marred all of Egypt. Because oppression doesn't just destroy the oppressed, it destroys the oppressors as well. And we see that later on in Exodus. We'll get to it. When God judges Egypt, when God judges Egypt through the ten plagues, it doesn't just impact Pharaoh individually. It impacts all who live by and benefit from this order that he has put in place, this social order. In other words, people drown in the water, maybe not realizing they're surrounded by it on every side. The question is, is there hope? As Exodus dawns and it looks incredibly dark, is there hope? Is there hope for the Israelites in Egypt, in their bondage? Is there hope for the Egyptians 
Who are, who are the oppressors? Is there hope for them to turn to find a different way? Is there hope for us today? The good news, friends, is yes. There's hope. There's incredible hope. Even in the face of what might feel like insurmountable things. Not just private bigotry, like here, but entire ways the world works. In a world that is broken in every way, there is hope. Because God is real and he's not silent. And that's hard to see in this passage. You may have noticed as we were reading through that God is not even mentioned in these verses. In fact, God's not mentioned in the book of Exodus until the end of chapter 1. And I think that's on purpose. Egypt and everything that it embodies is meant to be seen as a godless place. A place of no hope. The, dark, the darkness is meant to be seen as so complete so that we will know that even in the darkest of times, even in what seems like the most godless of places, God's light will shine. And that brings me to my last section here, which I'm calling, but, <laughs> but, starting in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The reason I call in this section, but is the beginning of verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The flourishing of the people continues in the face of oppression because even the incredible power of Pharaoh cannot squelch the purposes of God. Not even the incredible power of Pharaoh and Egypt, the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen at the time, can squelch the purposes of God. Even when Pharaoh doubles down, as he does here, and he spreads his bigotry and his hatred even further, as we see in verse 12 that the Israelites uh, were feared not just by Pharaoh, but by the people. The purposes of God will not be squelched. Even when the story grows more desperate and a program of genocide starts, the purposes of God will not be squelched. He will destroy the power of sin as he promised. Through Abraham's family, bless every nation on earth. God's purposes will not be thwarted. He will promise and he will deliver. What he promises, he will do. And not just in the sense of continuing to give people stuff. If we think of flourishing just in material terms, as blessing, as giving things, we're going to miss the point. If we come away from the book of Exodus just expecting that God is committed to giving this one group of people good things, then we've missed the point. But like I said last week, Exodus is the story of God continuing to work within his creation to destroy the power of sin. To fulfill his promises. And God blessing the Israelites here wasn't just a case of him picking one random people to give them stuff and to make them thrive just for themselves. It was an instance of him sustaining his promise. And God continues to do this through the great darkness of the Old Testament, through the rise and fall of empires, empires that are even more powerful than Egypt, through the roller coaster of kings and kingdoms, through exile until the light dawns. 
the light of the world, Jesus Christ. God continues to sustain His promise and to keep His promise. The light shining into this world that as John 1 says, the, the darkness cannot understand and it cannot overcome. The response of the darkness that seems to snuff out the hope of God's promise in the crucifixion of Jesus. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Because what do we see comes after the, 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 the combined powers of religious leaders and political power together against Jesus to stop what he's about? What do we see? The ultimate bursting forth of light into the darkness, the resurrection of Jesus, which we are told defeats the power of sin, defeats the works of the devil, winning for us not just the generic way of blessing, but winning for us a way to be reconciled to Him and to one another. Winning for us the flourishing that God purposes for us. So that now we can leave the poisonous waters of this world that we swim in. And we can live day in, day out for the rest of our lives into all eternity in the water of God's profound love for us in Jesus Christ. And reconciled to Him and to one another, we might not drown in the water we swim in in this world, that we might find ourselves surrounded by something else, that we might, like I said earlier, live lives where the grace of God becomes like the very air that we breathe, that we can walk and know that all the way down in our lives we are delighted in by God the Father. So I return to the question I posed at the beginning. What's the water that we're swimming in? What are the things that we're surrounded by on every side that we're, that we're maybe too close to notice, but on reflection, it's kind of the most obvious thing? You know, it may be swimming in the water of fear regarding others. It may be swimming in the water of defining ourselves in competition to other people, as if uh, other people succeeding is, 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 is detraction on us. It may be a way of life that sees others' failure as our success. That's a water that will kill us. It may be swimming in the waters of selfishness, of never stopping to look at the need of our neighbor, or never seeing our good as wrapped up in the good of our community. That's a water that will drown us and poison us as well. It may be swimming in the water, and this is a big one in our world, of legalism and religion, thinking that we need to earn the love of God. If we swim in the water of constantly thinking that we have to jump high enough for God to see us, that we have to shout loud enough for Him to hear us. That we have to do enough good works for Him to really love us. That is water that will poison us all the way down. That is water we cannot swim in. But whatever the waters of this world that we're swimming in may be, I pray this morning, and let's pray that God will build within us an impulse to turn away from that. And to walk into what God has for us, flourishing in His never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love for us. That's water worth swimming in.